Good morning. Well, you guys are getting better every week at that. Thank you. It's nice to have a little feedback. I um, want to welcome you. I know some of you are visiting for the first time, and uh, we're just delighted that you're here. Some from the island, some from the mainland, and uh, I pray that you feel absolutely at home and, uh, and highly encouraged by the time you leave here this morning. I just have a question for you. How many of you called your spouse a dictator this week? Come on. Come on, little dictators. How many? Okay, <laughs> quite a few of you did. That's what I've been hearing. And I've, I've had a number of guys came up to me and say, thanks a lot, Bob. That was a great message. Um, my wife has been calling me a dictator all week long, and, and some guys have been calling their wives little dictators. My wife has, uh, has kind of upped the ante. She's been calling me a maniacal, despotic, dictatorial megalomaniac all week long, <laughs> just for fun. And... Uh, I, I want to let you know that that uh, whole little teaching was kind of just a subset of the message, and the, the, the emphasis was is for you to look inside yourself, <laughs> not to identify those qualities in your spouse, uh, that, that we have this tendency to kind of want to rule our little universe, uh, and, um, uh, but it is, it is an interesting concept, but please stop calling your, your spouse a little dictator, okay? That doesn't really, does, doesn't get a lot of traction and doesn't accomplish much for the kingdom of God. Okay, Acts chapter 13, let's dive in. It's a great text. I think we're going to learn a lot this morning. I'm excited about sharing it with you and praying that the Lord is going to use it to advance his kingdom. I'd like to read the, the text. It's the first 12 verses of chapter 13, and then we'll consider its application to our life this morning. Acts chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. In the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. The two of them, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. They traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the sorcerer, for that was his name, what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Eliamus and said, You are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You are going to be blind, and for a time you will be unable to see the light of the sun. Immediately, a mist and darkness came over him, and he groped about, seeking someone to lead him by the hand. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. Father, we thank you for this passage of Scripture this morning. And um, we're just, we want to follow you, Lord. God, we want you to do in us and among us your will. We surrender ourselves and we we yield ourselves as completely as we know how to your purposes and say, Father, teach us and instruct us. Convict us and encourage us. Equip us and motivate us to be a part of your great work in this time that we live in. And so we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would reign supreme and that you would mentor and teach us and, and teach us the word of God. And we're looking forward to what you have uh, in store for us and we're ready to change. We're ready to say yes to whatever you teach us along the way. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Acts chapter 13 represents a very significant transition in the book of Acts. Um, there are several transitions that I'll mention here briefly, but it's a very pivotal point in, in this particular book because uh, we go from, in one case, a predominant character of Peter to now from chapter 13 forward, a predominant uh, character named the Apostle Paul. We move from Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, which was the first 
two of three phases in the book of Acts, chapter 1, verse 8, where he says, I'm going to send you to all these places. We move from Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria that have been covered by the gospel, and now we're moving out into the ends of the earth at that time. We're moving from a transition of ministry predominantly to Jews, and now it's being moved and exported to the Gentile community. Because of that, we're also moving from a predominant headquarters of Jerusalem for the early church, and now it's moving to a Gentile uh, town and city of Antioch. And so there is a significant transition that we're going to see in the weeks ahead as, uh, as we see the characters change, who the, who the primary uh, people involved in ministry change, as the type of people that they're ministering to changes, and as the type of ministry itself begins to change. The one consistent thing through all of this is the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the proclamation of the gospel. That does not change. Um, but we find at the ministry of Antioch that in verse 1 that the church had some very gifted people. And they were gifted in a variety of areas, but two gifts that are mentioned specifically are prophecy and teaching. Now, prophecy can be two types of ministries. One is the, uh, is the foretelling of the things to come. Uh, we have lots of prophets in the Bible. We have the Old Testament prophets, and then we have people like John, uh, who wrote the book of Revelation, a New Testament prophet. These are people that talk about things that are yet to be that no one else could possibly know except through the revelation of God. But prophecy can also mean forth-telling. In other words, the proclamation of the word of, word of God also qualifies uh, for this, this um, uh, lifestyle of a prophet. So a person who's teaching or preaching or proclaiming or preaching the gospel on the street or just wherever they go, uh, in some sense, can be considered a prophet. And the Bible tells us in Ephesians 4 verse 11 that God gave some to be apostles some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service. So all of these different giftings that are given by the Holy Spirit for the equipping of the church are given to the church so that the church, which is us, all of us, can be prepared for works of service, not just in the church, but even outside the church. So that's the purpose for even gathering on a Sunday morning. It's, it's really that you might be equipped and prepared and trained so that you can go out and do the work of ministry yourself, which is predominantly, not exclusively, but predominantly the sharing of the gospel of Jesus Christ with those that don't yet know Christ. The second category is teachers. It's the word didaskalos, didaskalos in Greek. And it means an educator, an instructor. And uh, this is exactly what Paul and Barnabas had been doing in Antioch for over a year, uh, according to 11, uh, Acts chapter 11, verse 26. But I think the clearest explanation of what a biblical teacher does is actually found for us in the book of Nehemiah chapter 8 in verse uh, 7 and 8. And I'll just uh, reference it briefly. But it says that the Levites instructed the people in the word of God, in the law. And so that was the overall heading of what they did. They taught people the Bible. Now, he breaks it down and tells us what that includes. He goes on to say that they read from the book. They read from this, not this particular book, because this includes the New Testament, but in Nehemiah's day, they read the Torah, and they read the entire book of the law to people. So they communicated the simple truth simply by reading what God had already said. And then it says they made it clear. In other words, they explained its meaning in context, in the context of the time, in the context of who the writer was, who the recipients were, what the objective was, and, and in general, the purpose for the writing. So he read it, made it clear, and then it says they gave the meaning for the text. So in other words, they interpreted it and then brought application to the people's lives. So they read it, explained its meaning, and then they brought an application to the people of how they could put this into practice in their own life that they might reap the benefit of, a, of an obedient life to the word of God. And so that's what a teacher does. Uh, the best teachers, I think, are the ones that simply read the word and simply explain what it says and then bring some sort of a meaningful application to our personal lives in our time today. And that's what a teacher does. And so this church had a number of prophets and teachers. And then in uh, the second part of verse 1, he begins to explain to us the identity of these various prophets and teachers. And he begins with a man named Barnabas. Now, we've already been introduced to Barnabas in the book of Acts. His name is really Joseph. But what's so wonderful about Barnabas because his name means son of encouragement, 
is that he was so prolific in his gift of building people up and, and encouraging people. And, you know, don't you need people like that in your life? I mean, is there anybody here that couldn't use just a word of encouragement in some area of your life even today? Well, Barnabas was the guy you wanted to hang around because whenever you got around Barnabas, he just had this way of, I mean, you, you know, your life could be just unraveling and Barnabas would suddenly come around and you just felt hopeful again because he had a way, a perspective of seeing the word of God and, and reminding you of the promises of God and the faithfulness of God and the future that God has for you that by the time you were done, it was like you could handle again the, the mountain that you're climbing. Well, Barnabas was so prolific in this gift of encouragement that they actually gave them the nickname Barnabas because his real name was Joseph. But they called him Barnabas because he was such an encouragement that they basically called him son of encouragement, that that was his nickname. What a great testimony about his life. He was a Hellenistic Jew from Cyprus, one of the islands that we're going to be talking about in our text today. He was a Levite with a tremendous knowledge of the Old Testament, the Word of God. He was a generous man, highly respected by both Jew and Gentile. He was a man full of faith and possibly most importantly, based on Acts 6 and, and Acts 11, he was a man who was full of the Holy Spirit. The second man we're introduced to is Simeon called Niger. Niger means black in Latin and he probably was from Africa, possibly even from Nigeria. And many scholars believe that this may very well be Simon of Cyrene who carried the cross of Christ uh, when he stumbled on his way to Golgotha. And then we have Lucius of Cyrene. He was from North Africa, uh, probably among those who came uh, bringing the gospel to Cyprus and Cyrene uh, as we're uh, told in Acts chapter 11. So he may have been one of the first men that came and communicated the, the gospel to, this, to these uh, island uh, nations. And then we have Manan, uh, who is called the foster brother of Herod, uh, Herod's son. A very common practice, uh, Herod, uh, his son didn't have any other siblings, and so a son was adopted to provide companionship, and this happened to be this man, Manan. This is Herod Antipas, the one that uh, was responsible for the beheading of John the Baptist, and also the one that was a part of the trial of Jesus Christ. And then we have finally Saul, the fifth member that's mentioned in this text, uh, Saul, by the way, is his Hebrew name uh, after the king of Israel, and, uh, and his Greek or Roman name is Paul. So it's really the same name in different languages. And uh, his pre-conversion life was pretty amazing. This guy was on the fast track to leadership in, in Israel. Uh, he was a Pharisee. He was on the, the council of the Sadducees and the, um, and the Sanhedrin. He was a Roman citizen uh, born in Rome in Tarsus of Cilicia, a devout Jew from the tribe of Benjamin. He was obsessed and a persecutor of the church. This guy was bent on the destruction of what he believed was a cult in, uh, in his day. And, uh, and he was responsible personally either for the arrest or even eventually for the trial and death of probably hundreds if not thousands of Christians in his day. But by God's grace, he had the Damascus Road experience. And the Bible tells us that uh, he was converted and became a follower of Christ. Uh, as a result uh, of this conversion, of course, he was kicked out of, you know, uh, the, the Sanhedrin, no longer could be a Pharisee. And so he went back to work as a tent maker, providing for himself, was called the apostle of the Gentiles, was a fearless missionary and church planter, and was a prolific writer in the New Testament uh, epistles. So we've got this collection of prophets and teachers and they're named. But the thing I want to point out before we get very far in this text at all is that the most profound thing that's come to me out of this entire text is that this was a spirit-filled church. This was a spirit-empowered, spirit-driven, spirit-led church. It was a church that was anointed by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, a church that was, that was yielded to the guidance of the Holy Spirit, a church that recognized the ministries and the giftings and the function of the Holy Spirit in the church today. And so as a result, some powerful things happened in this church. And I would suggest to you a primary reason why this church was so powerful, besides the fact that God was driving this whole thing, was that they had yielded themselves to the person not the thing or the power, but the person that Jesus Christ said it would be better for him to go so that this person might come. In fact, he said, you must wait for the power that this third person in the Trinity will deliver to you because without his power, you will not be able to accomplish the calling to preach the gospel. 
And so this church responded, and in the early days, we're looking about 25 years after the day of Pentecost. So they're still in the early days of the church, and yet far enough along that they very easily could have been a church that just kind of had the momentum going, and they just started doing church business. They started, you know, they could have just kept everything rolling, and it could have been almost like a business like many churches are today. But that's not what's happening with these leaders. They're spirit-filled men, and presumably spirit-filled women in this church, who are willing to allow God himself to lead his congregation by means of the Holy Spirit. It tells us in verse 2 that while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit spoke. I like it when it says, while. You know, there's so many instances in the Old Testament and New that while the church or while the Old Testament saints were worshiping, God did amazing things. In the Old Testament, they would worship and God would rout their enemies. In the New Testament, they would worship and God would bust doors open and gates would break down and, and people would be set free and delivered. They would worship the Lord and the Holy Spirit would speak. It was while they were worshiping. The word is interesting. It's a, it's a word in the Greek that actually harkens back to the Old Testament that deals with the responsibility of the Levites and the priests in the temple. That's the word he's using. He's saying that this group of people, they were worshiping, and actually a better, really a, a better translation would be serving. They were serving the Lord, and they were fasting. I got really convicted on this thing, and, and this may be one of the most important things that comes out of this entire lesson this morning, is that it is so easy to go from serving the Lord to trying to get the Lord to serve us from going to simply just loving him for who he is to having times of prayer to simply let him know what he needs to do in order to rescue us from the mess we got ourselves into in the first place. Let me ask you a, a, a question that I asked myself. When was the last time that you got on your face before God for no other reason except to love him? For no other reason except to minister to him, which is another possible Greek, uh, English translation, where you just decided, you know, I'm going to set a couple of hours aside and I'm going to just lavish praise on him. I'm just going to spend time just thanking him. I'm going to worship him. I'm, I've got no agenda. I'm not going to bring my worry list. I'm not going to bring this, you know, this huge, all these things that I think need to be taken care of. But I'm just going to come before the Lord and I'm just going to minister to him. You know, so many times we want him to minister to us. And, and nothing wrong with that. But when was the last time that you had it on your heart just to minister to him and to serve him? That's what these men were doing. It says while they were serving, while they were ministering to the Lord, and while they were fasting, it says that the Holy Spirit spoke. You know, I really believe that, that the first job that I have in this fellowship, the first job that Pastor Bruce has, the first job that our leadership team has in this church his ministry to the Lord. And I have to tell you that these last three weeks have been so busy. We've had so much going on with, with Arnold Fruchtenbaum and with all the different developments and things that are going on. And I've had, usually I spend Mondays in worship and prayer and the last three weeks have been really, I just haven't had time to do it. I've had, the only block of time I've had is to schedule stuff then. And I've missed those times. And I, and I realized as I was preparing this message, I thought, the most important thing I've got to do, the most important obligation I have before God is ministering to the Lord and serving him. Not by doing stuff, but just by being with him and declaring his praises and exalting him and worshiping him and fasting before him. And so I, I need to have you guys pray for me that God would uh, keep me on that track. And I, some, sometimes people ask me, what, what can we pray for you for? You know, visitors or people that are you know, or friends of mine that are away or in different places. And, and the first thing that comes to mind is just pray that I don't blow it. You know, pray that I don't goof up what God is doing. And they say, well, can you be more specific? <laughs> you know, because it's like, what do you mean? Well, you know, just pray that I will minister to the Lord. Pray that I will be close to the heart of God and, and yield it to the ministry of the Holy Spirit so that, so that God is leading this church and it doesn't turn into a church that started out with God leading it and then ended up being a church where people were leading it. And so this is what these guys are doing. And, and I want to really encourage you, I'm going to give you a chance at the end of this message to respond, but I want to encourage you, this is what God is looking for. This is part of the reason why I believe the, the church in North America 
is so weak is because we're so focused on God getting to do stuff for us, trying to get God to bless us, trying to get God to help us, trying to get God to do so many things for us, but not having the heart that this New Testament church had where their objective was not trying to get God to do anything. Their objective was simply to minister to his heart. And in the midst of that, God moved in miraculous ways. So the order of these things is very significant. While they were worshiping, the Holy Spirit spoke. He spoke to men who were already working, men who were already moving, men who were already serving. You know, you've heard that old adage that it's, uh, it's, it's easier to steer a ship or a car when it's moving. It's very hard to steer, you know, a vehicle or a ship or anything when it's idling in place. You can't do it. And uh, one of the things that, that this church was doing is they were already doing the work of the ministry when God spoke. You know, I know people that they're like, well, I haven't heard God tell me what to do, so I'm not doing anything until God tells me what to do. Well, the Bible already tells us what to do, and we're going to talk about that. We've got all kinds of commands in Scripture about what the New Testament believer is supposed to be active and participating in. So you don't need a word about some things. Now, the specifics about where to do it or how to do it or when to do it, those sometimes, that's information we need. But as far as knowing what to do, we've already been given that information. But I know a lot of people that are waiting for that information as if, you know, they have to have a special word from God on that when God has already given a special word on those issues. And so it's really important that, to notice, too, that this is a church not only that was spirit-filled, ministering to the Lord, but it was a church already serving and already doing the work of ministry. These guys weren't sitting in a room somewhere waiting for God to show them what to do, sitting idle. No, they were already serving, and very effectively, by the way, and in the midst of that, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Now, it's interesting. This word set apart means to separate, to separate these guys for a particular work. Now, I find it interesting that we're not told exactly what that work is, are we? The Holy Spirit doesn't say set apart Paul and Barnabas for the work at such and such a place at such and such a time doing these particular things. He doesn't say that. I found that interesting. Either the Holy Spirit wants to keep them ignorant or, and this is what I would suggest has happened, is that they already knew what to do. How did they know what to do? Well, because the Bible has declared from the very beginning what God's will is. In Genesis, he said to Adam and Eve, multiply, fill the earth. I want more and more and more of people just like you, a reflection of the image of God. And so God's plan from the beginning was to start with Adam and Eve and then, and then completely fill the earth and then eventually fill the kingdom of God, fill heaven with worshipers. And of course, that plan was derailed by, by the fall of man and, and it was, the image was marred. And yet in the ministry through Israel and then finally through the fulfillment of all those things in the Old Testament, Jesus Christ came perfectly fulfilling everything. And in the midst of that, he restored, adopted, cleansed, reconciled mankind in such a way that he said, okay, now, go back out again and multiply yourselves. And we have that command in, in Matthew 28, 19, and 20. And he says to the disciples after those three years, three and a half years of ministry, after his death and resurrection, he says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. I find it interesting that, um, and kind of fun actually, uh, I'm kind of a joker, as you guys know, um, but you don't know how much I restrain myself. I have to tell you, I really, I, it's, a, it's just the grace of God that you don't, that I don't just, I'm not completely who I would be other than God's work in me. Um, but, you know, sometimes I just can't help myself. People will come up to me and say, you know, Pastor Bob, I, I just am struggling. Well, what are you struggling over? I just don't know what I'm supposed to do. And I'm like, well, what do you mean? And I don't know what God's will for my life is. And I'll say, well, you know what? Sometimes God, and this is where I start to turn, you know, left. And I, sometimes I, you know, God will give me a word for people if I just will listen very carefully. Really? Yep, it happens all the time. Oh, really? Could you, do you think that? Could, yep, sure. I put my hands up on my scalp like this on my temples and I kind of let my eyes flutter a little bit, you know, and I massage my scalp just a little bit. And, and then suddenly my eyes, I'll make them big, you know. <laughs> I really have fun doing this. And, uh, and, 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 and I've got it. I know what it is. And they're like, you do? Yes. 
go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them all that Jesus commanded you to do. And I'm right every time because that's the command for every believer. <laughs> so I can't miss. What's interesting about that command is the Bible says it, the go part of it is in the present participle. If you were to actually give it a proper English translation, it would say in your going or as you are going, or as you are living your life, or as you are moving through the, the, the monotonous and the maintenance issues of life, make disciples. It doesn't say go off to some nation that, unless the Holy Spirit calls you and puts that missionary heart in you. But he says in your going, in your day-to-day -day experiences, in your life, make disciples. Make disciples. Every man should have a man that they are mentoring. Every woman who's been a Christian for any length of time, should be mentoring a woman. And it tells us what to do. Baptize them. And then teach them. Didaskalas. What do you do to teach someone? You simply read the word, explain its meaning, and then give an application in, 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 in our lives. That's it. It's really simple. Every Christian can do that. He says that is the calling. That's why the Holy Spirit doesn't detail what their mission is because they already know what the mission is. Paul has been called on the Damascus Road and he said, you are going to take my gospel, my good news to the Gentiles. Paul already had been given the command and we also have already been given this command and we've been set apart for this work and it's a glorious work. So we don't need to, to fast and pray to find out what, what God's will for our life is. He's already told us what it is. Now here's the thing that, is, that I need to share with you is that so much of our life is given to maintaining our existence. The house, the car, the payments, the kids, the hobbies, the sports, the activities, the friends, the organizations that we're a part of. So much of our life is given to that, not realizing that, that this is merely a foundation from which to make disciples. This is why God has ordained that you are in the neighborhood that you're in, that you have the job that you have, that you have the spouse that you have, the children that you have, the influence that you have, the friends that you have, the community involvement that you have. But we get mixed up thinking that that is the mission. That's not the mission. The mission is making disciples. The area that we live, the house, all of these things are simply the platform that God has provided. It's the foundation upon which we build the house, the kingdom of God. And if you're like me, the greatest struggle is remembering that because I'm like you. I can get derailed in the foundation forgetting that it's the house that he wants to build. But all the rest of it is going to burn. All the rest of it is temporal. That's part of the reason why if you feel like you're on a treadmill, you know, if you feel like you're a hamster in a cage going round and round and round just trying to pay for everything. And the reason that you may feel that way is because that is not the fulfilling life that God has called you to. It's the maintenance of life that provides the foundation in your going that you make disciples. And it's the making of disciples that makes the Christian life so exciting. It's being a part of it. It's getting off the bench and playing in the game that makes it so wonderful. And so the disciples understood this so when the Holy Spirit spoke to them, they didn't need any, any more information. They just needed to be guided where to do it, not what to do. And so I would suggest in the same way that God has made clear to us our part and our role now today. And I want to challenge you. If you don't know how to make disciples, ask us. We will teach you. And if you have been trained, and many of you have been trained, I want to encourage you to step up and give yourself away and be a part of the most exciting adventure a person, not just a Christian, but a person on this planet could ever experience. And that's building the kingdom of God one friendship at a time. The Bible tells us in verse 3 that after they had fasted and prayed, they, the other disciples there laid hands on these guys and they sent them off. They released them. Now it's interesting because it says in verse 4 that they were sent on their way by the Holy Spirit. So the best a church can do is to release people, but it can't go with them. But it says that the Holy Spirit sent them on their way. The Holy Spirit was the one that was prompting. The Holy Spirit was the one that was initiating. It was his idea. I was thinking about Jeremiah 29, 11. You know how it says that I know that I have the plans for you? And, and so often, you know, we find ourselves saying, Lord, I know the plans I have for me, that you would bless me, 
that you would give me a future and a hope. I mean, we've already got it all scoped out. We know the plans we have for us, you know, and they're good plans. And we just need to convince God that they're really good plans so that he can, you know, figure out that, you know, we're a page ahead. Um, but the reality is, is that he's a page ahead because that scripture says that God knows the plans that he has for us. My point is simply this. Anytime you look in the Old Testament or the New Testament and somebody has a bright idea, it always is a failure. Like when they decide they want to construct a golden calf or like when they want to go back to Egypt or when they want to rebel against Moses and set themselves up as leaders or when they even decide that they want to choose a disciple to replace Judas. They never get it right. Anytime they have an idea, it never goes well. But on the other side, anytime that God has an idea that's followed by his people without question, it's a... It's a unquestionable success, unbelievable. Here's the challenge, is that there's something in me and something in all of us that we want to let God know that we have a wonderful plan for our life. And the, the challenge, really, I think it comes down to dying to self and, and surrendering is, is understanding that God doesn't want our wonderful plan for ourselves. He's got no interest in that wonderful plan because his plan is far superior when we, when we settle for the plan that we have for ourselves, we settle for less than best. But God has a plan already. I mention that because the Holy Spirit had a plan. I, I want to I just help uh, point out that the disciples didn't come up with this plan. They were simply ministering to the Lord. It was in the context of just loving God that the Holy Spirit spoke, and he initiated. The best things that have ever happened to me in my personal life or in this church have been the result of God's initiative every single time. And it's, you know, I have to tell you, I'm addicted. I don't ever want to do something out of my flesh because it's, uh, it's an unmitigated disaster. It's a flop. It's, it's not, uh, will it succeed? It's just how badly will it fail? And when we allow God to actually take the reins in our life, we will begin to experience the fruit. But for that kind of a life, we need to be men and women who are worshipers, who are ministering to the Lord. Because without that, we'll never have these encounters with God guiding us. By the way, this is one of the reasons why Christians give up on this lifestyle because it takes too much effort to pray, too much effort to fast, too much time and, and, and too much energy to actually, you know, lavish some time on God just because of who he is. And so many Christians, and I've done this and I, I'm probably gonna do it in the future, but many of us at times we'll find ourselves only having small blocks of time to get everything, you know, like in a big burst, a, a machine gun out to God about what we need, and then we're running off with our wonderful plan for our life, not realizing that we never even gave the Holy Spirit a chance to speak. But if we did, his plan is far superior. And that's what, of course, the disciples had discovered, and that's, of course, why they were living this kind of a life. But we find out that they went down to Seleucia, which was about 15 miles west of Antioch, and they sailed from there to Cyprus, which is about 110 miles from Seleucia. So it was quite a journey. And they arrived in a place called Salamis in verse 5. It was an influential city, a uh, principal trade area on the eastern side of Cyprus. And it was an important city. And they began to proclaim the word of God, as was Paul's custom in the Jewish synagogues. And John was with them, we're told, as their helper. Now, we're going to learn more about John in the, in the weeks ahead. Uh, his name is John Mark. Uh, we also know that he went on... Uh, one of the uh, missionary journeys, this particular journey with Paul and Barnabas, there would be a falling out over this uh, mission journey. Uh, M John Mark would kind of bail on the, on the adventure and, uh, and there would be a falling out between Paul and Barnabas that would result in a split between these two men for many years. And then finally they would be reconciled again and actually John Mark and Paul would finally be reconciled again. But we're being introduced to him in this text. By the way, he is the author of the book that bears his name, The Gospel of Mark. But in verse 6, we find as they're going through uh, Paphos, uh, which is on the west coast of Cyprus, uh, it happened to be the, um, the worship center for Venus, which was a fabled goddess of love and sex. And so it was a very immoral and godless and cultic place. And as they're ministering in this place, they meet a guy named Bar-Jesus. Now, Bar in, in Hebrew means son of. And Jesus actually is taken from the Old Testament word, Yeshua, meaning salvation. 
And so this guy is declaring himself. This isn't his real name. This is his name that he's taken upon himself, kind of like Barnabas was identified as a nickname. This guy nicknamed himself the son of salvation or the, the, the son of a follower of the Savior. And uh, obviously he's, he's got the wrong name here, given himself the wrong name, and it's a self-proclamation uh, to promote himself. But he's described as a Jewish sorcerer. The actual word in Greek is magi, the same word that was used of the... They're not really three kings, uh, but they were a number of magi that came to worship Jesus. And they're called magi, which can mean an astronomer or an astrologer, not in the, not in the cultic sense, but in the sense of a, someone that's a stargazer who is looking for and allowing the stars to communicate to them about creation and everything else, as it talks about in Psalm 19. But the negative uh, part of this, um, uh, of this title has to do with an occultist who practiced uh, the consulting of stars and the dead and even demons in order to find out the future or to give people a reading, you know, like kind of like we have palm readers and that type of thing. It was very occultic. That was the brand of magi that Bar-Jesus was. And despite the fact that God forbade this kind of activity in Deuteronomy 18, the people of Israel were so apostate at this point in, uh, in, in history that it was a very common thing for these occultists to be going around and attaching themselves to governmental leaders and different governmental leaders would have their own little occult leader, you know, not, not of, a, of a church, but it would be like their private sorcerer who would help them make decisions and help them not only in, in, the, uh, in the realm of their rule and reign, but also even in their personal life. So it was like, a, you, know, like you had a private guru uh, that would be there teaching you, uh, or a private kahuna, if we were to say that, uh, in Hawaii. And so he was a false prophet, meaning he was an imposter. Now Jesus said that we would have people like this. He said, in, in these times, in the latter days, uh, Christ and false prophets will ap appear and perform great signs and miracles to try to deceive even the elect. And this hasn't stopped. There's still people like this. I was, um, a couple weeks ago when we had uh, uh, Dr. Fruchtenbaum teaching, we had some people come in. I, they didn't ask me about this, which is right away, it's a, it's, a, it's a yellow light when people start doing this. They started handing out flyers and I thought they just handed one to me for me to evaluate. But after the, after the teaching was over and after we were all fellowshipping, people were coming up to me with all these flyers for this Jewish prophet that's coming to Kauai this next month. And I don't normally spend time talking about these guys because there's always somebody like this coming. But there's a Jewish prophet that supposedly has had the Shekinah glory of God over him. They've taken pictures of him with the Shekinah uh, manifesting itself over the top of this guy. And when the Shekinah is on him, you know, uh, that, and that's the presence of the Lord, uh, people are healed and, you know, every disease and sickness and everything else. So I, I know right away this guy is a false prophet. I just don't know exactly why. I, but, I, but I know the way everything is happening, he's already a false prophet. So I go to his website and I go to one of his archive teachings and, uh, and right away it was just like that's all I needed to read. Here's his teaching. That the reason that New Testament Christians, because he claims to be a believer in, in Jesus Christ, the reason New Testament Christians are sick and ill and suffering and have financial problems and everything else is that they are not keeping the Old Testament covenant of Moses. There's 613 laws that have to be kept. And so what he's teaching is salvation by faith plus works. So you not only have to be a born-again Christian, it's exactly what the Judaizers in the New Testament were doing that Paul preached against and said, you know, he, 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 he declared them anathema. In other words, you know, castaways because of this teaching that they were trying to blend the Old Testament law with the New Testament work of grace and the new covenant of Christ. And so right away, I know this guy's a false prophet. But the fact is, there are people all over this island that are all excited about this guy and they're pumping me and trying to get me to promote it. I don't think I did that today, did I? Did I promote that? Okay, I hope I didn't. Anyway, my point is, is that it wasn't just then, but it's gonna be in the future and it's now. There will be these false prophets. So we need to be discerning and test the spirits to see whether these things are actually from God. But there was a, a man that he was an attendant to, the proconsul Sergius Paulus who basically was a governor of this entire region. So it was a very important position that this man held. And then Eliamus, which was his real name, Bar-Jesus, had attached himself to this guy and was kind of his personal spiritual advisor. So Paulus hears about uh, Barnabas and Saul coming, Barnabas and, um, and Paul coming in uh, to the area, and he has a real keen interest in spiritual things. And so he sent for Barnabas and, and Saul, Paul, to hear what they had to say. 
And, and we have an interesting byline on Sergius Paulus. It says he was, was an intelligent man. It means he was wise. He was prudent. I find it interesting that in Proverbs 18.15, it says that the heart of the discerning acquires knowledge, the ears of the wise seek it out. So this man, Sergius Paulus, was a wise, intelligent, and thoughtful man. And he wanted to give Barnabas and Paul a hearing. He wanted to hear the word of God, which I think is just wonderful. He had a hunger for the word of God. You know, Matthew uh, chapter 5, Jesus was teaching the Sermon on the Mount, and he said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. They will be filled. And this man is going to be filled on this day that he met with Barnabas and with Paul. But in the effort to try to communicate the gospel, verse 8 tells us that they were opposed by Eliamus. It says that he opposed the disciples. Now, my question is, why would anyone oppose the gospel of Jesus Christ? It's good news. It's a great message. It's the, it's the message of freedom. It's the message of adoption. It's the message of reconciliation. It's the message of a, of a new life. It's the message of forgiveness. It's the message of everything that man and woman on the planet Earth so desperately needs more than any other message on the planet. Why? Why would anyone reject the message? Well, we know why why uh, Eliamus would reject it. He had a different agenda. But why would anyone reject the message? Well, the Bible tells us in a variety of places what that answer is. John 3.19 tells us that they reject it because they love darkness rather than the light. There's some people that just don't want to come to the light because their deeds are evil. And to come to the light exposes it. I don't want to, you know, if somebody's not ready to have a transformation in their life and they really don't want to get serious about uh, about being forgiven and have a new relationship with God, they don't want to come to God because they're still in the middle of their sin. A second reason is found in 2 Timothy chapter 3. People reject the gospel because they have depraved minds that reject the truth. They actually are so depraved, they've been living that life so long that they can't even think of any other life than the life that they are currently living. Matthew 10 tells us another reason. They hate Christ, and as a result, they hate the offspring of Christ. You know, in Genesis chapter 3.15, it tells us that, that there would be this battle that would, that would continue until the end, until the coming of Christ, between the seed of the woman, a reference to her offspring, but also to the reference to Christ, to the seed of Christ, to all of us that are birthed out of his life, and then with the seed of Satan, and, and all that are birthed out of his ministry. And there would be this dynamic warfare that would take place through human history and is still taking place. But this warfare takes place in such a way that those who are of the seed of Satan hate the seed of Christ. And that's us. And so if you're, if you're ever caught off guard by this, don't be because it may have nothing to do with you at all. It's a spiritual battle. John 15 tells us that they hate believers because we don't belong to the world. We live this kind of otherworldly life. We don't live by their principles. We don't live by their priorities. We just have a different way of seeing life in every category because we're transformed. We've been filled by the Spirit of God. And Romans 2 tells us that they don't want to be accountable for their actions. That's why they reject the truth. I want to I share a quote with you. It's a little lengthy, but well worth hearing by Kent Hughes. He's doing commentary on this particular passage. This is what he says. There is a cost to sincere service for Christ. Never share your faith and you'll never look like a fool. Never stand for righteousness on a social issue and you will never be rejected. Never walk out of a theater because a movie or a play is offensive and you will never be called a prig. Never practice consistent honesty in business and you will not lose the trade of a not-so-honest associate. Never reach out to the needy and you will never be taken advantage of. Never give your heart, and it will never be broken. Never go to Cyprus, and you will never be subjected to a dizzy, heart-convulsing confrontation with Satan. Seriously follow Christ, and you will experience a gamut of sorrow almost completely unknown to the unbeliever. But of course, you will also know the joy of adventure with the Lord of the universe and of, of spiritual victory as you live a life of allegiance to him. I think that's a wonderful quote and it's so true. And so we have Eliamus who is opposed to the work of God who now opposes the disciples of God. And it says that he tried to turn the proconsul from faith. And this is really what Jesus rebuked the, 
the uh, teachers of the law and the Pharisees and Sadducees for. He, he said, woe unto you, you Pharisees, you teachers of the law. And he, he reads in the riot act and he says, you shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. And that's what Eliamus was trying to do, the proconsul. He was trying to slam the door so the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, could not through, walk through that door of salvation and into the promises of God. Jesus Christ goes on and he's talking to the Pharisees and says, you yourselves do not enter nor will you let those who enter, or nor will you let those enter who are trying to. And there's some people that just will do everything they can to prevent someone from coming into the kingdom of God. Now, Eliamus had a lot at stake because this was kind of like his bread and butter. He knew that if Sergius Paulus came to Christ, that his job was history. He would be booted out of there because he was a, a, a cultic sorcerer. But behind every Eliamus, behind every bar Jesus is Satan himself that is one by one by one trying to prevent people to come into the kingdom of God. That's why the Bible says that prayer is the most powerful weapon, the most powerful tool at our disposal to break the strongholds of the enemy. Because 2 Corinthians 4.4 tells us that the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they can't see the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ. And so how is that broken? It's broken through prayer. And so we find that that uh, this uh, Eliamus uh, decides that he's trying to oppose this process. Well, he didn't know who he was dealing with because in verse nine, it tells us that Paul was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, I wanna say something about this again because this is like the third time that the Holy Spirit is mentioned in this brief text. This wasn't the initiative of Paul. This wasn't Paul looking around at the other guys and saying, is anybody gonna do anything about this? I don't really wanna talk to this guy. Is anybody? And then Paul stepping up and saying, well, okay, you guys are cowards, I'll do it. No, it says Paul filled with the Holy Spirit acts. It's the Holy Spirit's initiative. It's the Holy Spirit that empowered. It's the Holy Spirit that gave Paul the words to speak. And boy, did he give him a mouthful. He just rips into this guy. He says, you are a child of the devil. He looks straight at Eliamus and he just completely thoroughly reads this guy, the riot act. He rebukes him and he says, you are a child of the devil, now, I just want to make a little point here because I know some of you had trouble with my whole teaching on, on uh, being a dictator, a little dictator last week and you went and talked to your spouse about this and accused them of that. Please don't go home and call your spouse a child of the devil. Uh, that'll only going to make matters worse, okay? So please don't do that and uh, don't tell anybody I said to do that. But what Paul is essentially saying is he's doing a play on words and he's saying, you who call yourself a son of salvation, you in, in, in truth are a son of Satan. So he's really just reading this guy out and he's, he's got this guy's number completely. And he says, you are an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. And he says, will you never stop perverting the right ways of God? Will you never stop perverting it? You know, it's interesting that Paul, later in ministry in chapter 20 of Acts, said, you know, I know after I leave, after he departs, that savage wolves will come into the church. And he said, they'll even come and rise from among your own ranks in order to deceive and draw disciples unto themselves. This is a constant problem that every church will have. It's a really unpleasant experience, but on occasion, uh, we have to take leadership in our church where we've got you know, people that are trying to bring a false teaching into the church and trying, you know, they're, they're walking around telling people that, you know, this particular doctrine and that particular doctrine and I get these little rumblings and everything and I'll sit down and I'll talk with the brother and I'll say, you know, can you share with me what, what's going on? I'm getting all these rumblings and everything and you're a false teacher, they'll tell me. You're sending people to hell, you know, you're doing... And I'm like, you know what, this probably isn't the right place for you. And so it's a, it's a responsibility that as leaders of the church we have to not let people like that, you know, uh, bite at and chew on the flock but that we're aware of these people because they're going to be here. They're going to come. We've had them in the past and we will have them in the future. We're not to be discouraged by that. We're not to be surprised by it, but biblically, we're to deal with it. And to the best of our ability, uh, that's what God has called us to do and that's what we do. And so he finishes by pronouncing judgment on this guy and he says, you are going to be blind. The hand of the Lord is against you. So here, here's an irony. The man that was spiritually blind, that was a seer of sorts, became physically blind. The man who sought to keep this proconsul, Sergius Paulus, from, from the faith actually becomes an un, unwilling instrument in his salvation. So it's just amazing how God can turn things around. Immediately, verse 11 says, a mist and a darkness came over him and he was groping about looking for someone to lead him by the hand. 
Isn't that amazing? That's the power of God over the enemies of the cross when we're living a spirit-filled, spirit-inspired life. And so we find that the proconsul, as he saw everything that happened, the Bible says that he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord and he believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. What is the gospel? The gospel is such a simple message. It's that we have sin, that we were born into sin, and that we manifest that sin on a regular basis in our life. It's just disobedience to the, to the Bible, to God, to even our own conscience. We violate what we know is right, and we don't do what is right. And the Bible says that's part of the gospel, is that we need to know the bad news, that we have violated God. We have offended him. And as a result, he can't have fellowship with us. Our fellowship with God is broken But God made a way through his son, Jesus Christ, and he said, the price must be paid. There is no way around it. I can't let it go. It must be atoned for. And a man or woman can either atone for it themselves by by suffering in all eternity and separation from God and experiencing eternal death. Or, door number two, God says, I have sent my son as an atonement, as as a sacrifice, as the one that would take upon himself all of the penalty for the sins of the world and any man or woman that would simply believe in him, that would put their trust in him, that would accept this message that Jesus Christ died on the cross for their sins and is now raised and seated at the right hand of the throne of God and is coming back for the church. If a man or woman would simply believe that simple message that so many people find offensive, But by believing that simple message, it says that they will be adopted into the family of God and God will consider all of that big, huge pile of offenses that we've built up over all these years. He will remove it because Christ's blood shed on the cross has covered it. Why? Because you accepted the gift of that covering. That's the gospel. That's the good news. Any man, any woman, any time can be born again, can have a brand new start That's the message of the gospel. That's what Sergius Paulus, this great intellectual Roman leader, a governor, accepted and received into his life. Interestingly, as um, we find out from Josephus and other writers, um, there's evidence that uh, Sergius Paulus not only became a Christian in the inscriptions of his writings and his family, but he became a prolific proclaimer of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The same man that Paul had the courage to speak to became also in essence, a prophet, one that foretold the word of God. Now, I want to I close with just a couple of quick thoughts. One of them is simply this. There's, a, there's a, a distinctive difference between how the disciples dealt with Herod in chapter 12. Do you remember Herod dealing with a dictator? What, do you remember what they did? They simply prayed. And, and Herod was eaten from the inside out by worms, just an awful, ugly five-day death. But here... Paul aggressively addresses Eliamus and just reads him the riot act. Now, why the difference? Because it's important as it relates to this whole issue of authority. Let me, let me share with you the difference. Herod, in Acts chapter 12, Eliamus, in this passage we're reading today, Herod, they simply prayed and God answered. In this case, Paul resoundingly rebuked Eliamus. Herod, on the one hand, was God's ordained authority. The Bible tells us in Romans 13 that God has ordained the leaders, the government, the, the police, all of these resources. He's ordained these, even if we look at it and say, you've got to be kidding, this guy isn't even a Christian. Well, yeah, but the Bible says God ordains them and we are to submit to those authorities unless we're being asked to do something that violates the word of God. And in, the, in that case, we have, we have resource and avenue for pursuing uh, some sort of a corrective measure but they are God's ordained authority. Eliamus was a usurper of authority. He was not a spiritual man. He was not representing God, even though he called himself Bar-Jesus. So he was usurping authority that did not belong to him. Herod, on the other hand, was appointed to resist evil. That's the purpose of a governor, is primarily to resist evil and then to do some good. But Eliamus's purpose, on the other hand, was to promote evil. That was what he was encouraging Um, uh, Sergius Paulus to do. Herod, if you look at the government, Christ nor his disciples ever resisted 
governmental authority. They never tried to unseat the Roman authorities. They never signed petitions. They never got a drive. I don't remember ever hearing about Jesus uh, waving signs out front of the Capitol building in, in, uh, in Rome or anything else, you know. Uh, he didn't go on a hunger strike. I mean, you know, all the things that people do today. Jesus did none of that. Why? Because the Bible says that that is God-ordained authority that believers must submit to. So you never find the disciples getting in the face of governing authorities either. They simply prayed. But in the case of Eliamus, as with Jesus and as with the disciples, when they came against usurpers of spiritual authority, they constantly confronted these guys, particularly the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the teachers of the law. Jesus never read the riot act to governing authorities, but he read the riot act all the time to these usurpers of spiritual authority in, in uh, Judaism. And then finally, the Bible says that we've got to submit to govern, governmental authority, but we must resist de demonic authority. And so that's why there's this distinct difference. We're only just a few verses away from these two stories. One, they simply pray and God unloads on the guy because that's the avenue of, of, of redressing an issue for a Christian who's under some sort of authority. But when we're talking about demonic usurped authority, we are to be bold and courageous and to rebuke it and to call it out and to call it what it is. Now, why do I go to the trouble of explaining all this? Well, because I want to encourage you that all of us are under some sort of authority and it's so important that we recognize a different response in those two different cases. When it's a God-appointed authority, the primary avenue, not the only avenue, but the primary avenue of recourse is prayer. It's fasting. It's crying out to God and letting God deliver, which he will. He can. So what are those authorities? Government. Another authority is your husband if you're married. Another authority is your parents if you're children. These are the authorities that God has given the family unit and in the, in the, uh, in the culture to submit to. So it's so important that we not use the practices that we would use against demonic forces against God-instituted authorities. Because if we do, we will find ourselves in deep trouble with God. So we might be trying to correct a spouse or trying to correct the government or trying to correct a, a, a spiritual leader in some way and we're using the wrong methodology. It's so important that we use the right methodology under the right circumstances. So what God has appointed, it's God's plan that we would submit to with prayer. Not agreeing with everything, not believing everything, not submitting to everything in a, in a, if it causes us to violate the word of God. But the primary method that God has given us for redress in these situations is prayer. The primary method of redress when we're dealing with uh, usurpers of spiritual authority and false teachers is direct rebuke and speaking the word of God. And so it's really important that we get those figured out so that we're not using the, the method for dealing with demons with our spouse or with believers or with the government. We need to understand that there's a difference. So I wanted to explain that briefly. Okay, we're done. But I want to give you a chance to respond. I, I look at this, this text this morning and here, here's where my heart is at. I'm thinking, Lord, please bring me back to a lifestyle of simply lavishing ministry time on you. Not to get something, not to find out information, not to get marching orders, but just to simply do what I remember doing and I love doing, but I haven't done for three weeks, which is just pouring myself out to God. I want that. I've strayed from that. I don't want to stray from that. I want to come back to that. And maybe even for yourself, you're like me and you can, you know, you're thinking back. When was the last time I actually just expended myself in glorious worship of who he was and who he is and what he's doing? And if that's you, I, I, I want to encourage you. It's in the midst of that that the Spirit of God will move. The second thing I want to encourage and I, I'm thinking about for myself and our fellowship is, don't you want to be a Spirit-filled church? Don't you want to be empowered by God and let the Holy Spirit lead this place? I, do you want me leading this place? No. Louder. No. Louder. No. Thanks a lot. <laughs> I don't want me leading it either. I want God leading it. So we need to cry out again and say, Holy Spirit, would you please fill this place again and fill us as individuals that we might be led by you in the midst of your congregation to carry out your work. And the final thing I want to suggest is that maybe there's someone here today that's an intelligent man or woman like Sergius Paulus, that you've heard the word of God this morning and there's something drawing your heart and you'd like to become a Christian. You want to become a follower of Christ, not a pseudo-follower like Bar-Jesus, but a true follower 
like Sergius Paulus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time and just been a wonderful time to be together and to love you and to love each other, to study your word. And I pray this morning that, Holy Spirit, that you would just have your way right now. I'm gonna give people a chance to respond. And I wanna begin by just asking if there's anyone here this morning that has not received Christ, you're an intelligent and thoughtful person that has an interest and you're not even sure exactly how you got here and why you came. I met a man that was outside of the tent this morning. I don't know anything about him, but I just think it's interesting. He wandered up and he drove by and he just felt like God told him to come to church here. Doesn't even, didn't plan on coming to church, was just driving by. But maybe you've been drawn here and the reason was to hear this message, but most importantly, to, to become a follower of Christ. If that's you and you want to be a, a Christian, if you want to be a follower and, and um, are willing to admit your sin, that you believe that Jesus Christ suffered on the cross and died to pay the penalty for your sins so that you could be reconciled to God and have a new friendship with him. If that's you and you want that restored relationship, I want you to raise your hand right where you are. We want to give you an opportunity to respond. I see your hand back there. I see your hand over here. We have two men that are responding. Is there anyone else? You're just saying to God, I need a new beginning and I want to be forgiven of my sins. I know I'm guilty and I'm praying that you would give me a brand new start. Is there anyone else? I want to pray with these men right now and I, I, uh, I want us to all pray. We're just going to pray a very simple prayer, nothing magical about the prayer, but it's just a prayer of surrender and we'll all pray this together in short little phrases. Dear God, we thank you for your gift of life and we want to receive that gift today. We confess that we have indeed done wrong. We have sinned against you and it's broken our relationship with you and we've been lost. But we now understand that Jesus died on the cross to forgive us of our sins and to give us new life. And I want to receive that gift this morning. And I want to receive you into my heart. Please forgive my sins. Wash me clean. Make me new. And the balance of my life Today I surrender to you. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for forgiving me. And thank you for having a plan for my life. In Jesus' name, amen.